talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Happy Friday at 900 CHML at 980 CFPL in London. Ted Michaels wrapping up the week. Another scorcher, another uh, uh, weekend coming up of uh, conditions that if you don't like hot, humid weather, you're not going to like this weekend, quite frankly, because we're talking uh, humid X's today of around uh, maybe 35, 38 degrees. Uh, Not much respite tonight. And then some rain, which we need again by Sunday. Coming up on the program today, in a couple of minutes, we'll be talking about um, that telescope that is looking deep, and we mean deep, into the farthest galaxy. I These numbers are absolutely mind-boggling, how deep this thing is going and how, how far into the uh, galaxy this thing is taking a look at. So we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. Also coming up, because generally on a weekend we talk about gas prices, they sometimes goes up, they sometimes go down. Well, gas is coming down uh, this weekend, but don't wait until... See, this is the confusing part. We've got to talk to our guest about this, why they're saying don't wait until Sunday, fill up this weekend. So we're going to ask you if you get a chance uh, to uh, give us a shout later on. Um, are you paying attention to gas prices? Do you type of person that drives until you're on an E and then you think, okay, I've got to go and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pay what I pay? How frustrating is it for you if you try to budget at home and try to figure out how much money you're going to be spending for gas? I mean, myself, I refuse with the car that I drive, and I could probably top it up if it's low, top it up and spend, I refuse to spend, and I know this is low for a lot of people, but probably mine to fill up is, depending on the situation, about 60 bucks. Normally, you know, 45, 50. I refuse to go over 55. I'm not spending up to 60 bucks to fill. You know, I get three quarters of a tank. Okay, so be the, the, just a psychological thing with me. I don't want to pay that much. And I know there are some people, I saw one guy when I was in a car wash about a month, month and a half ago, he had one, one of those big trucks, and I nonchalantly asked him what it cost to fill that thing up, and he said about 200 bucks. So <laughs> that's an awful lot of money. So we'll find out more about gas prices coming up. Also, talking about money, uh, Pierre Polyev, who seems to be uh, always involved in some sort of controversy, could be facing a fine for not taking part in the upcoming third debate. So is this feeding into the image that he's been trying to project of, you know, he's some sort of a renegade, look at what I am, Canadians, I'm not what uh, you expect in politicians and what you expect from the leader of the PCs. Will that backfire for him? We'll talk about that. Also, uh, we just found out, as you heard uh, moments ago, that uh, from the U.S., uh, that Steve Bannon has now been uh, found uh, basically guilty of uh, charges laid against him, and he could be going to court. This is Steve Bannon, of course, who was the you know close personal friend of uh, of Donald Trump. Contempt of court charges is what he's been uh, facing, and he's been charged with. So we'll hear more about that uh, coming up a little bit later on. Major story that is breaking today: two of Canada's men's World Junior Hockey teams are now being investigated after the alleged group sex assault in 2003 and 2018. Now we know about the one in 2018 that took place in London. 
and there were a lot of texts that have been uh, put online that you can see what happened allegedly between the victim and uh, one of the people who took part in that sexual assault. Well, now there's another one that's being investigated. That's in 2003, the World Junior Hockey Team. And you know, it's interesting, and I am not saying that these people were involved in this assault, but when you Google 2002-2003 World Junior Hockey Team Canada and the names come up, boy, you will be surprised by some of those names that were on that team. Not Again, not saying they were involved, but it's just when you start to look at that, you go, okay, We'll see what happens there. So we'll hear more about that coming up because clearly uh, the message uh, that has been sent by a lot of sports organizations about respect, about no meaning no, about, you know, don't be a bystander, mentorship, all that. Apparently it's not being paid attention to. Also, coming up, the government of Ontario announced that it has a paid sick days program. It's been extended to uh, March of next year. Now, it may sound good, but a coalition of healthcare workers doesn't see that as good news. We'll find out why. Online poll question today, yesterday's question, in the light of what we talked about, the controversy at Hockey Canada, should the entire leadership group of the organization be replaced? 79% said yes, 21% said no. Today's question, the Twitter poll, 900CHML on Twitter, with a third of the CFL season now in the books, do you think the one in five Tiger Cats will make the playoffs? Yes or no? You can weigh in and vote. Still got time. Again, Twitter, 900CHML. And um, I will say, if the Tiger Cats make the playoffs, then I think that they will probably be in a, in a crossover situation because the East, let's face it, is, is woeful. Woeful. And the Tiger Cats lost last night a late game out in B.C. If you missed it, a 17-12. to 12, So now they come home to take on a, a whole bunch of Eastern opponents, which will probably, obviously, uh, make sh- that will determine their season. So we'll have more on that. Uh, the online poll question today, as we say, at 900CHML on Twitter. And it just continues to get worse. Now a hospital in Kitchener said it's postponing some elective surgeries temporarily closing an operating room 120 staff members have to stay home because of covid grand river hospital said that the affected employees which is about two percent of the workforce have either tested positive for covid or have been exposed to someone who has i know in the hamilton area there's been a lot of talk because not necessarily of covid just because of staff shortages and funding that a lot of surgeries have been postponed so Think of it that way. You're getting ready to go, and we all we all have to go. Um, well, most of us have had surgery at one point or another. You get yourself mentally psyched. You're all set to go. You know, you don't eat anything after midnight, all that stuff. You go to the hospital. You're ready, to, and then they say, sorry, you have to go home because your surgery has been canceled. I actually know somebody several years ago before all this started, Uh, He was going in for some sort of uh, corrective surgery, some heart surgery, which, of course, can be rather, you know, it can be problematic. It can be scary. Um, He was all set to go, got to the hospital in the morning, and then they said, sorry, you have to go home. How do you deal with that? 
you don't, I guess. You just got to suck it up and continue. But, boy, that is not the type of situation that is good for people. So, again, a lot coming up on the program. And that uh, breaking news that you heard uh, just a matter of moments ago, uh, that uh, Mr. Trump's close personal friend, uh, Steve Bannon, has now been um, convicted of contempt of charges for defying a congressional subpoena. So we'll hear more on that coming up in the program a little bit later on. Well, uh, it is uh, a fascinating look at what is out there. Because, you know, you sometimes, you, you know, just kind of, I don't know about you, but at the nighttime I sometimes, especially if I'm out of the city, you know, and you're out in the country and you can see a lot more of the stars are shining, you just kind of glance up and think, wow, that's pretty impressive. But you ever wonder what's out there? I mean, really far what's out there? Well, as some really exciting news from the James Webb Space Telescope. And joining us for a few minutes to talk about what they found is the assistant professor or the professor of astronomy at York University, Paul Delaney, joins us. Paul, pretty exciting times for those in the astronomy world, huh? Hi, Ted. Yes, it's been a really great couple of weeks, and the surprises as well as the excitement continues to roll. So let's talk about this first of all, because I understand that this thing uh, found out, um, it, well, it obviously looked deep, and I mean deep, into the solar system, into the galaxy. I'm always curious, Paul, when they talk about, for example, uh, it appears to exist um, a new galaxy 300 million years after the Big Bang. Can you encapsulize, how do you know it's 300 million years ago? Right, fair enough. Uh, yes, we're looking back almost to the beginning of time. So the first concept is the further into space we look, the further back in time we are looking because it takes light that amount of time to travel a very large distance. So if you're 100 light years away, it takes 100 years to get to us. So when we finally see that object, it's as it was 100 years in the past. So distance correlates with time into the past. How we are able to ascertain how far away and thus how far in the past we are looking, that's a very challenging question. But the short answer is the light characteristics of a galaxy we can actually measure those what we call photometrically so we measure very carefully at differing wavelengths of light and there's a very well perceived well understood correlation between what we call the color the difference in intensity from one wavelength to another that correlation sorry that correlates with distance and once we know distance then it's easy to infer time or time taken for that signal to come back to us. So th this is an observation that has been made. It is to be confirmed. So that's the next thing to say. Uh, we're looking at our first really, really deep image from the James Webb telescope. And just because uh, the first inference is, gosh, it's 13.5 billion years old, we will now take other instruments and confirm that observation. But it's highly likely to be correct. And so that's a long way back in time. Paul, I'm, I'm curious now for people that kind of want to get a sense of just how deep uh, out, in the, out in space and, and out in the galaxies that you're looking. If one looks at uh, the planet Pluto, of course, as being the last, and uh, I, I know that they're always finding new planets and what have you, but what I was taught in school all these years ago, the last planet in our solar system is Pluto. So how much farther away from Pluto is this James Webb telescope looking? Oh, a long, long way. So let me use units of light travel time. When we look at the sun from Earth, we're looking back eight minutes in time. So the sun is eight 
light minutes of time away from us. Mm -hmm. When we look out to Pluto, we are looking about five and a half light hours away in time. So the travel time for a, a beam of light to go out to Pluto and to come back would be over 10 hours. So five hours one way. Right. We are talking about this galaxy that the James Webb Telescope has seen. We're not talking hours, days, weeks, or months. We're talking 13.5 billion years of light travel time. So absolutely blows Pluto and anything else in the nearby universe completely out of the water. It is so far away compared to anything that you and I normally can appreciate. I cannot wrap my head around that, that figure, Paul. That, that's that's mind-boggling. It's huge. <laughs> no question in the world about it. Astronomers get a little blase, shall I say, when we talk about distances. You know, when we look across our own Milky Way galaxy, that's like 100,000 light years traveling at the speed of light, which is like seven and a half times around the Earth's equator in one second. So 100,000 light years is just the diameter of our local pool of stars, the Milky Way galaxy. This galaxy that James Webb has seen, as I indicated, is 13.5 billion years old, meaning we are looking at it as it was only 300 million years old. The universe was only 300 million years old when this galaxy uh, started sending us light. So it, it's, it, it's quite phenomenal. And this is what we wanted from James Webb. We wanted to be able to see back to the cusp of time, to be able to see how stars and galaxies were forming for the very first time. And we're beginning to glimpse that already because this was a bit of a surprise. We weren't looking for this, uh, but obviously James Webb is well-tuned to the task. You know, I'm sitting here, you're talking about how far out that... Uh, God, I feel so insignificant here, Paul, just <laughs> talking about this. This is amazing. Well, it is. Uh, and it, as I say, it's, it's what we wanted as astronomers to be able to do. We have been waiting for James Webb's results for you know, 10 to 20 years now. And literally within the first few weeks of their observing capabilities, uh, we're beginning to see this far back in time. So it bodes really well for answering some of these fundamental cosmological questions over the coming weeks, months, and years. And what's amazing, just before we wrap up, Paul, is we've seen, or at least I've seen some of the uh, pictures that have uh, been shown from the Webb telescope. What's amazing me is some of the colors that are coming back from way, way, way out there in space. <laughs> well, the colors are very beautiful, but I, I, without bursting your bubble, some of those colors are what we call uh, color enhanced. Okay. Uh, the, the James Webb Telescope is looking at what we call the infrared, the heat end of the uh, spectrum. Right. And that doesn't translate well for your eye. So we do color it a little bit based upon, you know, educated guesses about what it would look like if we were really there. So, yeah, the images are spectacular. They're crisp. They're clean. But the colors might be a little bit fake. <laughs> and the last point, I know that there's been talk, I was reading uh, earlier today, that there's talk about sending some sort of another uh, vehicle to the moon in the next little while. You know what? Pfft, big deal, Paul. They're, they're going to the moon. They're not going 13 billion years out there. I just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> Oh, come on, Artemis 1, I'm looking forward to that launch at the end of August. It's It's been 50 years since we uh, launched a crew-capable vehicle to the moon, so 
I'm very excited about the local neighborhood as well as 13.5 billion years. Well, I can tell you that as a teen, I watched uh, the Apollo 11 launch virtually from start to finish. I was just totally fascinated by that. So I am looking forward because we know that the pictures and everything else from the surface of the moon will be a lot sharper than they were back. Oh, uh, oh, absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Back in 1969, of course, we just had the anniversary of that. The uh, professor of astronomy at York University, Paul Delaney, thank you for this. Much appreciated. A fascinating look at, gee, what exactly is out there? What's scary, Paul? Maybe there's somebody out there who looks like me who's looking back at me. (laughs) Well, that would be a good thought. That would answer the question of are we alone? (laughs) Thanks very much, Paul. Much appreciated. Cheers. Have a good Uh, weekend. Thanks very much. A delightful look at, uh, uh, yeah, I don't want to say that there's somebody out there that looks like me. Can you imagine? No. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The price of gas is coming down, and we know it's been going up, and and I I get a headache every time I try to figure out what I should do. So we thought, let's talk to the guy that knows best, the president of Canadians for Affordable Living, Dan McTague, joins us. Dan, first of all, good afternoon, and how are you on this weekend? Ted, good to hear from you. Wow, that's great. Uh, Blast in the past, and uh, same, same on my end. I'm doing fine. And I'll be doing even better tomorrow when that uh, price of the pumps drops uh, net six cents a liter. But that's probably where the good story ends. Uh, okay, so let's uh, talk about this first of all. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, the price of gas going up and down. And okay, uh, not that we're complaining, but why is it coming down this weekend? Well, Ted, we have a, uh, a circumstance, uh, a rare one for this time of year, where uh, United States. Department of Energy's inventory report showed there was actually a pretty big build in gasoline supplies there last week, meaning, of course, that uh, refineries are doing a great job at meeting that demand, but more importantly, that that demand may have slowed down a little bit as a result of those high prices that uh, we're paying here and they're paying stateside as well. And so that's really why we saw a slowdown in gasoline prices. We've been seeing this almost since it hit its height. Uh, you have to go back to June the 11th, and that sounds like uh, just last week or so, yep. but it's been almost six weeks the last time we saw gas prices hit their highest, which was 215.9. So now 168.9, a reflection uh, a bit on the demand side, but also concern, Ted, that uh, the world economy uh, may not be as strong as one thought. We may be heading towards a recession, and if that weren't enough, whenever there is good news about employment and about uh, economic activity, the threat is that uh, central banks, our Bank of Canada, the U.S. Fed, will respond with even higher interest rates. So it's a really known situation that energy markets don't want to uh, really deal with right now. So they're basically saying prices should drop, and that they have. So gas prices, uh, as you said, uh, coming down to probably about a dollar sixty-eight point nine average in Hamilton and Toronto and Kitchener and London and places like that. You know, it's funny because oh, as earlier as last week, my wife and I were driving past a uh, gas gas station, and I, th- I think the price down was about a dollar seventy-five or something. And we said, yep. "Look, it it came down to a dollar seventy-five, and we were also almost, you know, saying, "Yay! Uh, what what are we celebrating here?" I mean. It wasn't that far back that it was just over a dollar. Well, there you go. I mean, that was, of course, a time in which we had, uh, you know, lockdowns uh, in which demand for the product dropped by 15%. Uh, None of us were driving anywhere except for, you know, necessities, local necessities. There was no 
real travel, and we had two summers in a row like this. So I think what markets have done here is sort of reflected on the fact that there's scarcity of supply. Uh, refineries didn't quickly nimbly ramp back up. We've lost a few refineries. Actually, actually, one here in, in eastern Canada, the Come By Chance refinery closed down. So the U.S. Northeast, that's New York, uh, Washington, uh, the you know Penn State, uh, Boston, all that area, the largest area of consumption of uh, oil in the world, uh, suddenly saw a dramatic slowdown and less production. So that really meant uh, prices had nowhere to go but up. Of course, it didn't help, Ted, that the Canadian dollar, which traditionally has always protected us, the so-called petroloony, just doesn't do that anymore. We're not selling enough oil. We've blocked pipelines. So we're paying an extra 36 cents a litre because of that. That's not a small number. 36 cents a litre, and even the Bank of Canada last week said, hey, you know, uh, we no longer get the benefit of the higher interest rates, lower uh, uh, high oil. So guess what? Inflation's here to stay. That aside, this is going to be a very, very, very volatile period. We're going to see prices go up $0.10. Cents. Uh, we're going to see them drop $0.10. Cents, and it's going to continue that way pretty much until, well, until 2023, 2024. Wow. Uh, I was going to ask, is it, um, and it seemed when all this started way back when, uh, back in the end of February, when the, the, um, the situation between Russia and Ukraine started and everybody was pointing the finger at Putin saying this is why gas prices are, yeah. are, are going up. Is that too simplistic now, several months, uh, if you will, down the road from the start of that, uh, that event? Well, Ted, punchindriving.ca, my good friend David Booth, who I worked with in my days, public relations for Toyota Canada, going back. 20 years of an interview with me back in end of 2019, early 2020. I said, by the 2022, we're likely looking at $2 a liter. And I sort of plotted out how that would happen. Wow. The weakness in the Canadian dollar was one. But the federal government adding taxes, more carbon taxes, and regulations, which are having the effect of really driving up the cost of everything, not just fuel, would eventually bring us to this point. And so, uh, you know, I, I think we're at that stage now where, uh, you know, we either have to get... Uh, as my grandfather would have said, Fisher cut bait. Yep. You've got a government in Ottawa that says no more fossil fuels. They don't want it. They, they think the world doesn't need it. In the meanwhile, Europe and other parts of the world are saying, please, Canada, you're the third largest provable reserves in the world. Why can't you build a pipeline? And so Vladimir Putin has played this masterfully. Uh, we've been playing checkers while he's been playing chess. And uh, unfortunately, Europe has learned a very, very valuable lesson, and that's that you can't you know, uh, look a gift horse in the mouth. They need natural gas, they need oil. If they can't produce it themselves, they've got to look to countries that are responsible and legitimate uh, and not willing to take on another nation like Canada to be able to, uh, to provide that for them. So that aside, Ted, I think we're looking at, uh, you know, continuation of higher prices that will uh, certainly mean higher natural gas prices, higher diesel prices as we head into the colder weather. I know hard to say on a day like today, but uh, we've got to start thinking ahead three or four months when we'll be back to these high prices for just about everything to, to heat, to eat, and to drive. And just to uh, just before we wrap up then, Dan, you yep. uh, kind of touched on it already to put on your, if you will, uh, turn yep. from the past, your, your soothsayer hat. You already predicted that, that it'll be a volatile situation, um, and you talked about Putin playing this beautifully. What do you see as far as that? Uh, I, I know politics is kind of what we are involved in, but obviously petroleum more so, but what do you think is going to happen out, out in, uh, in Ukraine, and what how will that affect what happens here? maybe three, four months uh, away from now? Well, I think Putin's going to hold Europe over a barrel for the next year and a half, two years. Uh, at that point, I think you're in other countries like Canada saying, all right, you can 
build a pipeline, uh, or at least we will commit to building a pipeline or an LNG project. That should help alleviate. The Americans will do the same. Remember, the Americans have natural gas, but we've got more than they do. And uh, we can send a lot of natural gas down through their pipelines to get it to liquid natural gas plants and get it over to uh, Europe and help them uh, in the uh, in this hour of need or in this year of need. So it's, uh, it's like the 1930s and 1940s all over again. It's going to take time to do this, but I think the narrative in this country has changed. Yes, we know it's important to be concerned about the environment and climate, but we can't ignore fundamentals like energy security because if we do, uh, we're going to let the Vladimir Putins, the Irans, and the Venezuelans of this world call the shots. Speaking of which, Ted, on uh, Sunday we're up seven cents a liter. So you know we got to uh, drop a four cents a liter today. We got to drop a six cents a liter tomorrow. But uh, my uh, crystal ball here is usually pretty damn good. Has been for twenty eight years. Uh, it's uh, it's going up uh, seven cents a liter. You'll probably hear about this on other stations tomorrow. But uh, you got to hear first today. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> or not so much, Dan McTague. Yes, I will. You know, and and very quickly, I I went on air and said, look, I you know m- my car that I normally fill up usually was about uh, roughly forty five fifty bucks to fill if it was on empty. I refused, Dan, to go over sixty bucks. I'm paying fifty five, whatever it is, it is. If it tops up at uh, three quarters of a tank, that's it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take your advice and top it up tomorrow. The president Tomorrow's of Canadians, yeah, uh, one or the other, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, Dan McTague. Thanks for the update, and uh, I know we'll be talking. Talking to you soon as this uh, gas situation continues to fluctuate. Great to talk to you again, Ted. Have All right, thanks, weekend. thanks very much, Dan McTague. And there you have the situation. So fill up tomorrow because Sunday uh, we could be looking at a different situation. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. The story came down about 3 o'clock this afternoon. You heard the breaking news that Steve Bannon has been found guilty on two charges of contempt of Congress. And a guy who, you know, in the summertime, generally you would think things have calmed down, but the global Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini joins us. Reggie, at the very least, we're not really uh, searching for news, are we? No, I mean, this is a city that, that the news watch never stops. And I know. So let's uh, let's talk about this first of all. Let's uh, for for people that kind of followed it but maybe didn't uh, quite uh, hit them exactly. Talk about the Steve Bannon case and how it ended up coming to this particular verdict today. So essentially, what we had was Steve Bannon, a former tr- uh, chief strategist to uh, the former president, uh, was subpoenaed by the January sixth committee to not only appear and testify, but also to produce uh, a significant number of documents. And they gave him a time frame to do that. And when he failed to follow through on either of those, the charge of contempt of Congress was ultimately laid. And eventually found itself into a courtroom. It went to court earlier this week. Uh, It was a fairly rapid case, uh, and that jury decision came down earlier today, as you mentioned. But what's kind of important to to think about here is a guilty verdict on a a contempt of Congress charge in the United States is incredibly rare, and it's been, if I believe it's been more than half a century since this kind of a, a verdict was handed down to somebody, because oftentimes it doesn't make it through to this point. So this is important, number one. Number two, it's important because this is now the closest person to the former president to now be facing uh, uh, jail time for potential roles or connections to 
what took place on January 6th. Now, I understand that the jail time really isn't, uh, it's not like, you know, 10, 5 or 10 or 15 years. It's not a lot, but I think the fact that he is getting possible jail time is probably the sentence, and that's probably what people should be aware of. Yes, it, it, it does carry a minimum of 30 days for each count, uh, and there were two counts of contempt of Congress that uh, he was found guilty on. It's a maximum of one year, minimum of 30 days, maximum, I believe, of 10000 possibly $100,000 uh, in a cash fine. That sentencing is set for October thir- uh, 21st, but uh, Steve Bannon's lawyers have already said that they fully intend to appeal this case most kind of experts uh, have said that this is going to be a difficult case to appeal because they didn't really provide any defense for Steve Bannon outside of attempting to delay these uh, hearings in the first place. Nonetheless, they do intend to appeal this, so there's a chance there's zero jail time, but there is still a significant chance here that there will be jail time. Now, uh, outside the building a little while ago, Bannon thanked the judge, but he also blasted members of the House Select Committee conducting what he calls a show trial. Who does that eerily sound like, Reggie? Well, I mean, look, there's, whenever you're talking about a Republican who has connections to the former administration or somebody who is, has direct ties back to the president, they are speaking to an audience of one, but through that audience of one, they're speaking to that audience of tens of millions who voted for the former president. But it is worth pointing out, you know, going beyond Steve Bannon, going beyond this guilty verdict today, these January 6th hearings that took place throughout the last several weeks and will kick up again uh, later this fall are making a difference. 40% of Republicans say that they're watching. 55% of independents say that they are watching. And 50% of this country feels that charges should be laid against the former president. So whether or not Steve Bannon or the former president or Republicans say that this is a, a witch hunt or a sham trial, it's a trial that is making a difference. And that difference was seen today with a guilty verdict for contempt of Congress. And yet we shouldn't be surprised. I know that there uh, every network that you would... Uh click last night to ABC and PBS and all this all the networks were showing that uh, the hearing last night Reggie except for one Fox News and they issued kind of a statement should we be surprised that Fox News chose not to televise those hearings no, and Fox News has oftentimes, especially when it comes to the prime time hours, is not going to uh, do anything that potentially paints the, the former president in a negative light for two reasons. Number one, Sean Hannity, their nine o'clock host, is their money machine, uh, and, and they're not going to give that slot up. Number two, there is nobody coming to defend the former president. Uh, and number three, a number of Fox News hosts were named in the January 6th hearing last night as people who were trying to get the president to call off the protesters at the Capitol. So it makes it more difficult for the narrative used by Fox News to say that this was nothing or don't pay attention to it when their hosts were directly implicated by saying what was going on wasn't acceptable. You know, um, you're um, not old enough to actually have lived through this. I did. In some ways, Reggie, and I know in your research, when you mentioned Watergate and the trial and all the stuff that went on and the hearings through that hot summer of 1974, um eerily similar to what was going on then, uh, two entirely different cases, but both involving a U.S. president. So things really haven't changed all that much, apparently. 
No, and and I think what's different about this case, uh, unlike the Nixon case, uh, Nixon resigned and there was no ability to bring charges against uh, the president, especially because he ultimately was pardoned. This time around, uh, you have a Department of Justice that could potentially bring charges against a former president. They could break that precedent doesn't exist right now. They're just in a tricky situation because we're in a midterm year right now. If they are investigating, if they get to the former president's level, they won't announce that because they'll be seen as interfering in the election. So DOJ is in a kind of a tricky spot despite the mounting pressure, but there are the similarities there of two presidents who went beyond what they were supposed to have been doing, and ultimately consequences were, were kind of lingering around the corner. Well, it, uh, it, it's never dull, put it that way, what's happening uh, in Washington. Uh, Reggie Giacchini, the Washington correspondent for Global News, uh, love to watch your reporting. You do a great job for all of us. And, uh, well, hopefully uh, you'll have a little bit of a break before things pick up again, because I know it's been uh, rather hectic down there in Washington. Thanks for the update. Thank you. London is what we've been talking about a lot recently because uh, there was a story that came out about what happened in the 2018, the alleged 2018 sexual assault involving eight former Canadian Hockey League players at the World Junior Hockey Championships in London. Now the story has come out uh, today, as a matter of fact, uh, a little while ago, that uh, the situation is getting, well, even worse. Halifax Regional Police have confirmed they are historic, uh, investigating a historic assault in 2003 after being contacted by Hockey Canada late Thursday about uh, an incident that allegedly took place at the World Junior Hockey Championship there. Joining us for the next few minutes to talk about this situation is a new executive director of Interval House in Hamilton. Sue Taylor joins us. Sue, good afternoon. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Excellent. So uh, let's uh, talk about this situation first of all. Um, I would say that, uh, uh, unfortunately, Sue, it seems like we're not really surprised because I would suspect that even more of these stories are coming out, which tells me that a lot of what the great programs that you and Interval House have done now and in the past with the uh, mentorship program and and be a bystander program and everything else, uh, the message doesn't appear to be getting through. Well, I think what we see happening now is that people are coming forward, survivors are coming forward, um, and their voices are going to be heard. There is strength in numbers, and I think that we're seeing that. There's a platform right now where people are coming forward, and we're and I personally am eager to hear and support survivors. So let's uh, talk about this situation. When you first heard about the situation in London uh, that allegedly happened in 2018, um, were you surprised at all by what you had had heard? I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't surprised. Oh, boy. And I'm not surprised because I work in the field, Mm -hmm. and we have a shelter system that is full of survivors of sexual violence and gender-based violence. The stats alone are shocking. Um, over two-thirds of Canadian adults can't even define consent. So if as adults we cannot define consent, how are we supporting our youth? So I'm not surprised. You know, you bring up that uh, two-thirds of adults in Canada don't uh, can't even confirm or talk about or know what consent is. There's an old uh, expression that's, you know, still... Uh, holds true today no means no i don't understand that figure to me is very very upsetting the fact that two-thirds of canadians really don't know uh what uh what no means 
Absolutely. And one of our roles, um, because I work in the shelter system and I've always believed that you could build another shelter and I can fill it. I don't want to fill shelters anymore. I want to prevent. And the way we prevent is by working with youth, boys, men, and allies. We raise awareness and we teach. We teach consent. We teach the scripts that people need to be more than a bystander. And I believe that that is one of the most effective ways to prevent. I don't want to react anymore. I want to prevent. That's an interesting point. Now, when you do have those those programs, um, are are they paying attention? Are they asking questions? Uh, do they appear to be interested in what you're trying to teach them, which is a life lesson, which is clearly very important? Our prevention program, Be More Than a Bystander, it really is built on having different touchdowns in an individual's life. And I can, and I'm excited to share the story. Yep. Um, we did a drop-down uh, presentation to, I think they were about 11 or 12-year-old in a dressing room, rep hockey. But a 15-minute conversation, we brought the Bulldogs, we talked about healthy and unhealthy relationships, we talked about the role uh, that team can play when it comes to change and disrupting behaviors. And about three years later, post-COVID at this point, we were in a high school uh, doing a larger presentation because it's a build-on model. And a youth, a boy in that class, put up his hand and he said, oh, I know, I know who you guys are. I was, I was at a presentation when I was skating for rep hockey. He was able to pull out his phone, show pictures of the event, talk about some of the stuff that we had talked about a couple of years ago. And he does this in front of his class. I knew then that we were on the right track. I was so energized when I, when I saw that and heard that because that child remembered the message that we gave him. He's getting it again in high school. He's sharing it with his class. And we have partnerships with Mac. And if he goes off to Mac, he's going to hear it again. That, to me, is a message that carries great weight, and it's, and it's working. He's hearing it. I'm wondering, uh, if uh, Sue, if, if you could touch on some of the numbers. I know that I, I did, uh, I don't know, couple, I think probably pre-COVID because nothing was happening as far as uh, people seeing each other, but I did have a visit of what was going on at Interval House before COVID and uh, some of the numbers there, and they were at full capacity then. Have, uh, have things changed at all, or are you still at full capacity or more so with women who are escaping abusive relationships? Um, the only time we fell below ca- capacity was when COVID first hit. Right. And that's because under ministry directive, we had to limit the number of people in the building. Um, once that was lifted, which was relatively quickly, we filled back up to capacity and have operated above capacity for the majority of the pandemic. So above capacity for us means that we do have women and children sleeping in offices or on couches. So they're not technically even in shelter beds. Um we are, the system is, I can't even say it's crowded because that would be an understatement. Um, we are overextended. We're tired. It sounds like that. Now, the next question would be uh, going forward, and we're kind of uh, putting the hat on here. Uh, unfortunately, the fact that you are, as you say, overcrowded uh, at overcapacity um how how do you get funding? I know everybody's all charities need uh, money. We understand that. Uh, I know charities are are asking governments for help and asking sponsors. What about your own situation at Interval House? Um, you're always looking for funds. I know uh, how how dire is that situation as far as trying to get funding to keep your programming going? 
I mean, that's part of our battle is the ongoing search for funding as well as expansion. Uh, we will look to expand uh, our beds at some point because there's not enough beds in the system. We were blessed recently re with receiving a grant through the federal government, which allowed us to build more capacity into our Be More Than a Bystander program. Because again, like I mentioned earlier, I can build another shelter. We can fill it. I have it filled within a couple of days. I'm not sure that's the response we really want to give. We want to prevent. So right now, I am working hard in investing in programs and finding uh, funders to invest in prevention programs so that we can disrupt gender-based violence, we can disrupt, disrupt sexual um, violence, and we can have less people coming through the shelter system. And unfortunately, uh, situations like what we've heard about. The good news, Sue, is uh, this: um, your your program started a few years ago, um, much after what happened allegedly in 2003 in Halifax, and we'll get uh, more on that coming up. But uh, certainly, I know that you do great work, and I know that you're out in the community getting the message out to be more than a bystander is very important. And, well, let's just hope that uh, uh, things... Uh, I, I don't know if the situation will get worse and we'll hear more stories. I suspect we probably will. The gymnastics the people are now talking about uh, what happened there. So collectively, Sue, we have to get the message out and we'll do our best to uh, do that. Thanks very much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Pierre Polyev's campaign could be facing a $50,000 fine for not taking part in the upcoming third debate. So some are wondering, is this feeding into the image he's been trying to project, you know, kind of the renegade, so to speak. Well, joining us to talk about this is public relations and pop culture expert Alyssa Freeman joins us. Alyssa, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well, Ted. How are you? Good. So listen, who said Canadian politics are boring? Last week we talked about Trudeau's haircut. Right? <laughs> now, now, now we're talking about Pierre Pauly basically going, I'm not going to uh, uh, basically take part in the debate. Uh, your, your thoughts about what Mr. Polyev uh, said off the top? Well, firstly, I'm not impressed. I think that if you're can, as the candidate for a party for this country, then all Canadians should know how you think. Not just the ones that you consider your base, not just the ones that go to rallies, uh, that consider themselves renegades and mavericks, but all Canadians. Why shouldn't all Canadians know what you stand for? Instead, he's ducking out of the, out of the debate. He's taking a $50,000 fine, which leads me to believe that that campaign has very deep pockets. And, you know, he may be betray, um, betraying himself as a maverick, and I'm not going to, I'm just going to fuck the system, and I'm not going to go to a de debate because I don't think I have to. Well, yeah, you do. It's a democracy. You're, uh, you're up for leadership. We should know how you think. And you shouldn't have to be able to pick and choose at this level of government. I'm wondering from a PR standpoint, because a senior member of the team released a scathing statement on Twitter explaining why uh, he made his decision after the party announced that it would proceed with the debate in early August. From a PR standpoint, how do you spin that? You know what? I think that Pierre Polyev's followers are a very, very particular demographic. And maybe they have decided that they are the type of base that doesn't care about a debate and would not tune into a debate regardless. So if they are talking to that portion of Canadians, have better avenues as a campaign 
where they can get their message across. And remember, when you get your message across solely as you're in a debate, uh, if you're in a debate, you have people coming at you and they're trying to, uh, you know, pull apart your ideologies and paint you in a negative light. When you are not in a debate and you're just, you know, it's just a one-way discourse, well, of course, you have better control of the message. And really, that's the underlying strategy of all of this. And, you know, the campaign is saying the sole objective now is to get new members and existing members to fill out their ballots and submit them before the September deadline. In many ways, Alyssa, we heard this uh, several months ago when we went into the Ontario provincial election. Remember, a lot of Doug Ford's people were, uh, or candidates, rather, uh, they, they weren't Doug Ford's people yet, but they were PC candidates. They were told, you will not appear on uh, the local television cable debate or anything like like that because we're out uh, on the campaign hustings. I guess in this case, given the election uh, results, that strategy kind of worked, didn't it? I don't know if it was a strategy that worked or that people just were not interested in the election. Let's yep. not forget that this was a very, very low voter turnout. Mm-hmm. And maybe more voters would have turned out had they been able to understand where their candidates stood on issues. And the fact that... They, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I please, go ahead. And the fact that they chose to duck out of that, first of all, I just think it's cowardly. Second of all, it's, it's really a very high-handed approach, thinking, listen, we're just going to win this. Let's not screw it up by in any way, shape, or form. And part of that is making sure that we don't make a verbal or narrative misstep. So how do you control the narrative? You control the narrative by not getting out there and not, uh, you know, sort of competing or going against your uh, other people running in the riding so that they can't pull apart your ideologies and or your reputation. So some may look at it as sort of a bit of a duck and cover and let's just do what we need to do to win the election. But come on, is that what really serves Canadians and Ontarians? Is that really the way that we should be running uh, our leadership conventions and keeping our candidates hidden so they can only say what they want to say and not make them um, you know, the target of any criticism? I think that that's not the way that we want to run things. I'm, you know, looking down the road, curious that should Mr. Polyev win, and of course this is really looking down the road, um, and he becomes a leader of the federal progressive conservatives, if there comes time for a debate, a national leader's debate between Polyev and, and Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh and other people, I, I would hope that his people would say on this one, yes, you do have to take part. I would hope so, too. I would think that it would be a huge slap in the face to the electoral process not to appear as a, uh, you know, as a part of an all-candidates debate. I mean, we have seen some of those shenanigans to date. But I would think that, you know what? Man up. Show us what you're made of. If you think you can be the leader of this country, we need to know how you stack up against the other candidates. So it would be interesting to see if they pulled that same strategy Um you know, on a, on the federal election level, I would certainly hope not, because I think that that says, you know, more, some things more negative than it does positive about that. The party and the person they chose as leader. Alyssa Freeman, uh, thank you for the update. A fascinating look at at what's going on in politics. Because I got to tell you, as a as a journalist, semi retired, but still somebody who has a yen for politics, my 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 first question for Polyev would be. Uh, 
what do you have to hide? Why aren't you taking part in this? So we'll see what happens. Alyssa, have yourself a great weekend. Thanks for this. And thank you. You too, Ted. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The government of Ontario has announced its paid sick programs is being extended until May 31st of 2023. May sound good on paper, but to some, a coalition of healthcare workers don't see this as good news. The Decent Working Health Network said the worker income protection benefit is not the comprehensive paid sick days uh, that are needed to address the crisis in Canada. Joining us is a general pediatrician based in Toronto and a member of the Decent Work Health Network. Daniel Beerstone joins us. Uh, Daniel, first of all, good afternoon. Happy Friday. Good afternoon. You too. How are you? Good. So let's uh, talk about this now. Uh, off the top, we should say that uh, the el- the extension, as we say, lasts until uh, March 31st, another eight months. Eligible workers will continue to get up to $200 a day for up to three days if they need to get tested, vaccinated, get booster shots, self-isolate, or care for a family member who is ill from covid so having said all that, uh, talk about some of the concerns that you and your organization have about that. Well, as you say, the devil is in the details. I mean, it's very nice on paper. But, but really what this is, is that um, workers have, have only had three days to use over 710 days. I mean, it's basically like saying you only have three paid sick days to work to, to use in your whole lifetime, which is just absurd. Um, what is needed... I mean, first of all, three paid sick days were always inadequate. Just the fact that when you have COVID, you have to isolate for five days. So if you're someone who has precarious work and can't, and a missed day of work means you may fail to pay your rent or, or to put food on the table, three paid sick days were never adequate. But the idea that you would not have some sort of annual number of paid sick days is just absurd. And now... We know that people are getting who have had COVID can get reinfected with COVID. Um, so the whole idea that the government has workers back, as the Minister of Labor had said, is just completely disingenuous and absurd. So what would the next step be from your group? What, what would you like to see um, uh, when you hopefully have a conversation at some point with the health minister or the government as a whole? Yeah, I mean, our demand is the same demand that we've made throughout the pandemic, which has been 10 permanent universal paid sick days annually for all workers, Um, because that is really what is needed for workers to be able to afford to take time off when they're sick, to afford to not send their children to childcare when their children are sick, to afford to attend preventative medical appointments, to get COVID vaccines, to get their children vaccinated. And, and we can continue talking about, you know, the, 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 the really crucial benefits of, of paid sick leave. Uh, we mentioned off the top uh, that you're a general pediatrician based in Toronto, Daniel. I'm curious uh, from what you have experienced with, uh, with patients and with families and things like that, um, is COVID still maybe not as running rampant as it was before, but I know that there is still concern about yet another variant coming in the fall. We've kind of been given a heads up. Uh, should, should people still not let their guard down? So, so, so it's interesting that you mentioned that. I mean, I, I also work in a, in a hospital in the GTA. I would say that 
over the past couple of weeks, we have seen much more COVID, much more children presenting with COVID-related illnesses. Um, so absolutely, we should not be letting our guards down um, right this moment, specifically. Um, but the other thing that's been striking is just the resurgence of nor what we might call normal or garden variety respiratory illnesses. Viruses that we typically see mainly in the winter months have reached such skyrocketing levels over the past few weeks, really unprecedented for this time of year. And so when you think of the benefit of paid sick days, it goes far beyond COVID. It's to reduce the transmission of all kinds of infectious disease that can make kids quite sick, especially, you know, kids who go to daycare get eight to 10 colds a day or even more. Um, and, and, and the younger ones are, are, are quite susceptible to many of these so-called normal viruses. And so enabling families to keep their children home when they're sick and avoiding infecting other kids, especially young kids or those who have medical conditions or precarious immune systems, it's such a crucial public health um, intervention. It also would go a huge way in terms of easing the tremendous pressure our emergency departments are facing right now, including our pediatric emergency departments. Daniel, I'm curious by by what you had mentioned uh, just a moment ago about kids in daycare getting sick. What was the what were those numbers again about uh, number of, of kids and uh, getting sick uh, at being at daycare? So, I mean, often a number a number that's cited is most children will get at least eight to ten viral viral infections a year. But right. in my experience, I I think the number is much greater than that. Wow. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think many kids in daycare, include, I mean, my youngest is not in daycare, but I have older children who, who are at school. I would say we've had viruses almost every two weeks. It's just a never-ending cycle of a runny nose and a cough, which for many kids is not a big deal. But for some some kids do get quite sick with, with viral infections, needing hospitalization or even ICU stay in some cases. And so it is important. I think COVID has taught us that there are public health measures that we can do to, to, to reduce the transmission of these viruses. And, and paid sick leave, as I said, is, is, is one, uh, one very crucial measure among others, such as masking, for example. Now, Daniel, I know that uh, parents always, especially moms, I'm not trying to be you know sexist here, but moms, moms have instincts. They have gut instincts all the time. Their kid's not doing well. Um, if, if a child gets uh, cold, sneezing, coughing, says his throat or her throat hurts, uh, feverish, should that set off the alarm bells that maybe the parents should uh, do the COVID testing on the child, uh, uh, no matter how young they are? I mean, I think it's difficult, of course, to provide medical advice over radio, but I think as a rule of thumb, um, of course, access has been a key issue in terms of accessing COVID tests. Um, but in general, given the numbers, I think it is prudent for anybody in the population to, to be doing a, at least a rapid COVID test if, if available to them um, at the sign of any symptoms, um, predominantly to, to know whether they should be isolating and reduce the risk of transmitting COVID-19 to others who may be more susceptible or more vulnerable. Daniel Beerstone, General Pediatrician in Toronto, member of the Decent Work and Health Network. I know this has been a battle that uh, they has been waged with the government for quite some time, uh, obviously during COVID. Uh, hopefully you'll have some more uh, successful news with this campaign uh, down the road. Have a great, healthy and safe weekend. 
Thank you. You too as well. Thanks for inviting me. There you have it. Uh, the update on what's happening with the Decent Work Health Network and getting uh, more uh Sick days for parents to be able to take uh, time off when their little ones get sick. Hopefully that will be able to uh, be the case down the road. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, how do you talk to your kids about cybersecurity and smart decisions online? It's a conversation that I know we've been having for the last little while. How can a family manage cybersecurity? Is it not just about the kids being safe? Sometimes us older folks can learn from the young people as well. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, weighs in on this topic because uh, nobody better to talk to than cyber safety and cybersecurity. Carmi, first of all, good afternoon. Is it a nice steamy weekend for you? Oh, goodness, is it ever uh, a typical (laughs) Southern Ontario weekend. I will not complain because being Canadian, I remember full well what it's like in the middle of winter. So we'll take whatever (laughs) summer we can get. So let's uh, talk about this now. Some of the uh, uh, numbers have come out uh, from a new survey reveals that parents of kids are under the age of 18 are overly trusting of their children using devices. Does that set off a kind of a, a warning bell for you, Carmi? It absolutely does. It really shows. And this this echoes and mimics my own experience within my own peer group, you know, other parents of kids all around the same age, uh, where, you know, the, the common refrain is, well, my kid knows more about technology than I do. So, you know, I just hand them the iPhone, the, the smartphone, the iPad, whatever, and let them do their thing. Uh, and that is that's when alarm bells go off in my head because the you know parents you don't have to be a technology wizard and you certainly don't have to be better at technology in order to help your child navigate the digital world. In fact, uh, it's not a prerequisite to be a tech expert uh, because behaviors have the right behaviors have nothing to do with technology, everything to do with uh, what we were raised to believe long before technology even became a thing. And so this whole parents throwing up their hands because they don't think that they have a role to play because they're not tech experts. Uh, Let's dispense with that right now. That should never be the case. Parents should never back away and let their kids lead. You're a parent. You lead. You know, um, some of the other uh, numbers that came out in the survey, a majority of parents, 69%, say they trust their children to browse the internet unmonitored despite over three-quarters of all Canadian adults believing kids are somewhat likely to give their family members' personal information away. We've been talking about this, Carmi, for the last several years. Clearly, nothing's changed. No, it hasn't. And these numbers are depressing. We see report after report that shows very clearly uh, parents aren't weighing in as they should. Kids are being allowed a huge amount of latitude to to essentially swim the ocean solo, which is really what it amounts to. And so they don't know where to go when they do run into content that is questionable. They don't they don't know who can answer their questions because they're essentially left to fend for themselves, which is the worst of all uh, situations. Uh, kids need to know that they can trust mom and dad or some other trusted adult uh, who is there regardless. Um, And it's not that parents can stand over a child's shoulder all the time. This isn't about parents monitoring their kids' online behaviors. Don't we should never think that we can install some monitoring software and that will take care of it for us. The reality is, is that our kids are going to be using devices at various times when we're not physically there. And so 
rather than trying to police their activities, we want to give them the tools so that they know how to make the right decisions when they encounter these things on themselves. It's no different than, you know, when we were kids and our parents were trying to street proof us, uh, you know, give us the skills that we needed so that if we were downtown on our own, uh, that we knew what to do when things got a little scary. And it's the same thing digitally. Don't think that you can hover over your kid. Don't be a digital helicopter parent. Instead, Teach your kid the right behaviors. Teach them appropriate levels of sharing versus inappropriate levels levels of sharing. What do those lines look like? What do the sirens look like? Where do you know that you're getting into trouble? Um, and then let them learn. They'll only learn by doing. And if we never let let them learn by doing, if we always make those decisions for us, or for if if we always let them uh, let ourselves make those decisions for them, um, they'll never have a chance to build those skills on their own. And so we do have to learn how to let go a little bit after we've given them those skills. Now on the other hand, though, Carmi, I'm going to sound like a, a crusty old guy here, and I don't care, because that's what I am. I know in a lot of cases, you, uh, a family event, a family wedding, kids, um, I don't know, maybe 10, 11, 12, or, they're on their phone, they're not talking to anybody, everybody's sitting around having a good time, and they're constantly on their phone, not talking, not communicating, and then parents wonder why their kids don't do well, for example, in job interviews. How do you mm-hmm. manage that situation? Well, I think part of it is is modeling those right behaviors. And so it isn't just about teaching them how to use the phones and the devices and the apps and the services appropriately. It's also teaching them when it's appropriate to use them and when it's appropriate to take the device and turn it off or put it in their pocket and interact with the real world. Uh, being a good digital citizen is you know, part of that process of learning to be a good digital citizen is learning when to turn the technology off. And a lot of parents aren't doing that. In fact, you know, I, I see so many parents of younger kids uh, planting the seeds for these you know, digitally addicted children because they'll literally hand their iPad to them and it'll become a babysitter for hours on end. And so by the time the kids get to the tween age or the teen age, well, they've already had seven or eight or more years of essentially being babysat by these technologies. It's very hard to break that habit by then. So, you know, parents, A, have to recognize that, you know, they don't want to be planting those seeds in the wrong way too early. And at the same time, they should be modeling the appropriate be- the appropriate behaviors. If you want your kid, when at the next family get-together, to not be addicted to his or her phone, well, then you shouldn't be pulling out your phone at the dinner table and using it as well, that when your child is interacting with you in real life, in person, face-to-face, that you're not constantly fishing your phone out of your pocket. Sorry, hang on. I've got to get this text. I've got to respond to this email. It's very important. Hmm. Kids pick up on that and they pick up on those behaviors and they learn by watching what we do. If we're not behaving appropriately, I can guarantee you they won't either. Last question for you. Kind of a loaded question. I'm coming out of left field now. You are a technology analyst, journalist, and you mentioned as well you're a parent. There's always a conversation with parents. Their kids, when they're really young, say that they want their own phone. In your opinion, just based on what you think, what age should a kid be given a phone? Um, Maybe taking it to school and, you know, using it properly and things like that. It's a great question. And, you know, the answer is there is no, uh, you know, sort of single response for everyone because every kid is different. Every child will have different needs and every child will have different levels of of maturity. And, and, And so parents will have to decide, you know, when they're mature enough. In our case, you know, we've got three kids. All of them got a phone when they started high school. So, you know, in in grade nine was when they were spending the day in high school on their own. They got a phone uh, and with a, a very 
strict set of rules about how they could use it, what the appropriate expectations were to be used for emergencies only or to communicate with us. Um, it wasn't to play games. It wasn't to, you know, load apps that we weren't aware of. Uh, you know, it started a dialogue. And rather than sort of seeing it as a, you know, an admission of defeat, you know, okay, kids got a phone, that's it, I'm done. It gave us an opportunity to start that conversation with them anew. In other words, you now have a phone, you're responsible for it. Let's do this together. Uh, and and that's how they grew up digitally. When when they hit grade nine, we got them their own phone in the summer, and just before gave them a, about a month or so to get used to it. By the time they hit high school, they were pretty responsible. We didn't have to course correct them too much because they were already used to those appropriate behaviors. And you know, it could be a little bit earlier for some kids, a little bit later for others. But read your child, have those conversations with them, and both all of you will then know when they're ready for it. Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, thanks for the update. A fascinating look at that new survey and and how parents can uh, maybe uh, not suffer so much angst when it comes to their kids being on a cell phone. Have yourself a great weekend. Appreciate it. I will. You as well, Ted. Thanks so much. All right. There you have it. Carmi Levy. Remember, I I hope people had a chance to see this movie. It was rather lengthy. My wife and I saw it uh, on New Year's Eve when it came out on Netflix. I mean, it's a long movie, you know, New Year's Eve, you watch the movie, you take a break, get up, you go to the fridge, get a snack, go to the washroom, come back, whatever. Anyway, the movie was called The The Irishman, and it was about the movie about uh, Jimmy Hoffa and Jimmy Hoffa's wife. And a stellar cast, as always, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, kind of like uh, Vegas and Goodfellas, Uh, not that Pacino was in it, but anyway, and Ray Romano and everything else. But there was a whole thing about they showed in that movie what allegedly or maybe did happen, we don't know for sure, uh, how uh, Jimmy Hoffa met his demise. And there's been all kinds of rumors and stories about what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Well, the FBI released results of tests to determine if a missing Teamsters boss was buried in New Jersey. A tip from the son of a man who worked in an old New Jersey landfill who claimed on his deathbed that Jimmy Hoffa's body was buried there in a steel drum in 1975 led the FBI to a spot under the Pulaski Skyway in Jersey City. After a nine-month investigation and two visits to the site, an FBI spokesperson said Thursday that nothing of evidentiary value was discovered during that search. Authorities believe Hoffa disappeared in suburban Detroit in 1975 while meeting with reputed mobsters. And so the mystery continues. Where is Hoffa? Todd Ant, ABC News. Hmm. I may want to watch that movie again soon. It's such a great movie. Other news from the U.S. COVID-19 symptoms have left President Biden with a deep, raspy voice and persistent cough that were evident as he met via video conference with his top economic team. The White House let reporters into the room where senior officials were meeting virtually with President Biden, who's isolating while he has COVID. Let me start by apologizing my voice. I'm feeling much better than I sound. The president sounded hoarse. His doctor said in a letter this morning his voice was deeper, and he now has an occasional loose cough. Mr. Biden could be heard coughing and was seen on camera unwrapping what appeared to be a throat lozenge or cough drop. The president was later asked how he was feeling. He gave a big smile and a thumbs up. Karen Travers, ABC News, the White House. Hope the president gets better soon. And now let's shift gears and uh, heading into the weekend. You always talk about movies and entertainment and stuff like that, and we just did. Jordan Peele's latest horror film called Nope. I just like saying that. Nope. 
opens in theaters today. Here we go. Expectations are high for Nope. Writer-director Jordan Peele's latest opening Friday. Pundits are forecasting a 45 to $55 million debut for the sci-fi slash horror flick. They know where we are. That's less than the $71 million bow of 2019's Us, but more than Peele's Oscar-winning Get Out in 2017. Both of those films ultimately earned around $175 million domestically. Based on reviews so far, look for Nope to likely open at the high end of forecasts. Christopher Watson, ABC News. Remember the television show a few, well, several years ago now, um, more than several, The Hill Street Blues, remember that television show? Well, an Emmy-nominated actor who was one of the stars of that show, sadly, has passed away. His name, Toreen Black. TV viewers in the 1980s will remember him as the streetwise detective Neil Washington on Hill Street Blues. He was there throughout the show's run, and his work earned him an Emmy nomination for Best Supporting Actor in 1981. He was also in Sanford and Son, What's Happening, Good Times, and Taxi. Black has died at the age of 82 after a brief illness. Black had two biological sons and adopted 11 children. In 1989, President George H.W. Bush named him a national spokesman for adoption. I'm Oscar Wells Gabriel. And uh, he has one more report, as does Oscar. We're talking about uh, presidents. Well, the latest batch of recipients for the Kennedy Center honors have been announced. Gladys Knight did most of her work with her backup group, The Pips, but she's among those being honored as a solo performer at this year's Kennedy Center Honors. She has performed at the gala alone, but says she never expected to get one of the honors herself. Her first reaction to being picked was, What? The Irish rock band U2 is also being honored. In a statement, the band says it always considered the U.S. a second home and is honored to receive the nation's top arts prize. Other recipients include actor George Clooney, singer Amy Grant, and composer Tania Leon. The honors will be presented December 4th. I'm Oscar Wilde's Gabriel. And that uh, wraps up uh, what has been uh, an interesting week. News changing on the fly, and, uh, well, hopefully everybody will get a chance to have a relaxing weekend. It is warm. Uh, make sure that you get the usual stuff, hydration and everything else, and just enjoy the weekend and, and try to get away from it all. Thanks to show producer, uh, content producer Will Erskine, and show producer Will Weber. I'm Ted Michaels. I'll be back on Monday, one more day. So you've kind of been warned. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, thank you. Have yourself a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.